All right, well, hello, everyone. Uh, as Jason Barrow said, my name is Darren Hudson. Some of you guys might know who I am. Most of you probably don't. That's okay. Um, so I came on staff a little over a year ago. Uh, I came to work with the young adults, uh, those that graduate high school, kind of moving on into their mid-20s. And so for the last year, that's what I've gotten to do. I have gotten the opportunity to walk through life with these young adults, and I've loved every single second of it. So before I get into the sermon and we get started with everything, uh, I wanted to take just a minute, since I've never been on this stage before, I've never talked to you before, to kind of introduce a little bit of my journey of how I got from sitting in a seat on Sunday mornings at Osborne for six years to standing up here and teaching. So about a year and a half ago, I was on my way to work. I used to work as a production supervisor, and I loved my job. I really did. I worked for a good company. I had a really good boss. I enjoyed what I did. But one morning, Bethany and I, my wife, are talking on the phone, and we're talking about devotions, and I start to get really passionate and excited, and I'm sure you guys will experience some of that today. But I couldn't, couldn't stop thinking about the conversation even after it was over. And so I go into work, and I sit down at my desk, starting to get ready, and this question kind of seeps its way into the background. So this question was, hey, Darren, is there anything in this world that you get passionate about and love the way you do me, my word, and my people? And I kind of dismissed it. I just said, oh, well, yeah. And I kept going on with my day. But as the day went on, that question kept popping up. Do you love anything more than me, my word, and my people? Finally, when I got a chance to kind of settle down after a few days and really dig into it, I said, yes, God, I love you. So on Sunday mornings, I sit in this seat and I listen to Pastor Steve preach and I fall in love with you even more. And I hear worship like Jason Bear, uh, Wilson just brought up. And I go, God, I love you. And yes, I love your word. I love that on Sunday nights, I'm a part of a small group and I get to sit and we get to study the word of God as a group of believers. And God, I love your people. On Wednesday nights, I get to go down and I get to lead a small group of these middle school guys who love Jesus and they want to develop a faith of their own. And you let me be a part of that. And so I thought I had answered the question. I didn't. You see, I, I, I kept thinking about it and God kept asking the question. And finally, I just said, okay, God, what do you want? And he said, Darren, I want you to love me more than your job, more than your security, and more than your future. I want you to love my words so much that you'll dedicate your life to studying it so that you can shepherd and care for my people. That's what I want. I want everything. And that terrified me. See, I had a plan. I just graduated with my business administration degree. I'd had a long conversation with my boss about moving forward in the company. I had a plan. And God said, yeah, I need you to love me more than that. So finally, all this stuff is turmoiling inside. And I, I decide I need to talk to Bethany, my best friend. So we sit down at dinner one night and, and I'm thinking about the way to present it. And it just kind of, kind of blurts out. And I say, Bethany, I think God wants me to go into ministry. And I'm expecting the same thing that I have, which is a bunch of questions and a bunch of doubt. Okay, so has the church called you? No. So how are we going to make money? I don't know. How long is this going to take? <laughs> I have no clue. I have no answers. But this is why God gave me this wife. She puts down her silverware. She looks me dead in the eye and she goes, I've been waiting for you to figure this out. <laughs> See, not only is my wife smarter than me, but my wife has more faith in my God and she has more faith in me than I do. And she knew that God was doing something. And I had to submit to it. And so I did the next thing. I, I, I went to Pastor Steve and I went to my, my mentor, Dr. Craig Childs, and I said, hey, what's the next step? And they both said, you need to get equipped. 
The people of God require much, and so much is required of you. And so you need to go study the word of God. You need to go to seminary. And so I started that process. And I started to figure out what seminary to go to and what to study. And during that whole process, Pastor Steve comes to me. And he says, hey, Darren, uh, would you want to come on staff? And I've already proved I'm not good at answering questions. And so I said, what staff? <laughs> like, what are you talking, what? Do you need somebody to mow your yard? Like, what are we talking about? He said, Darren, I, I think there's an opportunity for growth here. And I want you to be a part of it. And so I was blessed to come on part-time while I'm going to school full-time and just work with these young adults and thrive and to spend time with them and to watch them walk through life and watch these transitions and watch them walk through the valley of the shadow of death and do all of these things. And I get to be a, a, an under-shepherd. And I love every second of it. And then a couple of months ago, Pastor Steve calls me and he says, Hey, Darren, you know in July I take some time off so I can kind of plan the vision of the church and I can really dig into the word of God and see where he wants me to lead the church. And so some people on staff get up and they preach. And I thought, yeah, man, I love hearing Ryan Murphy. I love hearing David Tuck. I love hearing Kevin Bedard. I love hearing these wonderful, talented men get on this stage and present the gospel. And so Steve goes, all right, Darren, so would you want to preach? And I went, huh? <laughs> are, you, are you sure? And I love Pastor Steve because he says, Darren, I'm not forcing you to. I'm asking you, do you have a desire to teach? And the answer is yes. I love sharing my heart for the word of God. I love talking about all that God is doing. But there's another side of me that just is filled with inadequacies. See, I have heard Ryan Murphy preach. Last week I was hoping he messed up and he didn't. <laughs> but I, I look at these men of God. I, I've sat under Pastor Steve for six years and I've heard him present gospel truths in such a way that I walked out of here with handles that I could do something. And my thought was, I'm not worthy. And the truth is, I'm not. But as I began to study, as I began to dig into the scripture, as I began to look and what God wanted me to share. I was reminded of this wonderful story about C.H. Spurgeon. If you guys don't know C.H. Spurgeon, he is one of the greatest preachers of all time, not only because he was a phenomenal orator, but he's one of the best theologians this world has ever seen. He is good at what he does. But my favorite story about C.H. Spurgeon really isn't about C.H. Spurgeon. You see, C.H. Spurgeon's grandfather taught and preached at this small little country church. And his members came up to him and they said, hey, you know, we've heard about your grandson and how phenomenal he is. Can, can you get him to come preach at us, for us? His grandfather says, yeah, I can, I can get Charles to do that. So he calls Charles or he talks to Charles and he says, hey, Charles, would you come teach Sunday morning? So Spurgeon says, yeah, absolutely. And so he gets on a train and as he's riding his way to the church, the train gets delayed. And so the pastor the grandfather gets up behind the pulpit. He brings up the Bible and he starts preaching. Well, Charles Spurgeon, about midway through the sermon, walks through. And the grandfather does something amazing. He says something that's phenomenal and transformational. He says, I'm going to step down. And I'm going to let Charles Spurgeon preach because I know that a lot of you want to hear him speak and he's worth listening to. But before I do that, I need to ask Charles a question. He said, Charles... Is it not true that you may be able to preach the gospel better than I can? 
but no one has a better gospel than what we have. You see, you can't improve on the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter who's speaking because our story is powerful. The work that the God of the universe did in us is transformational. And it doesn't matter who's speaking. It doesn't matter who's in stage because that's not what's center stage. What's center stage is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And just like that's true for me, standing up here in the place of someone like Pastor Steve, it's true for you as you go out and you live your life. You see, I think we have a phenomenal salvation story. But I don't know if you guys have noticed this. The further we get away from our salvation story, it's almost like it, it drifts in power. I don't know if you've ever met somebody that was saved from addiction or adultery or some massive sin, and they, they get redeemed and restored but it's like you talk to them, you say, hey, how are you doing? And they say, hey, let me tell you about my Jesus. And it's beautiful to watch. But the older we get, the further we get away from that moment of surrender, we seem to forget our salvation. We forget what a miracle it actually was. So today we're going to be talking about Ephesians 2. And Ephesians 2 Paul is talking to the, the churches of Ephesus. This is a collection of churches. And they were a faithful and they were a good people. But he starts off with something really simple. He says, I know you're doing the work of the ministry. I know you're being the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. But you need to remember who you were. You need to remember who you were before the God of the universe saved you. So he says that in verses 1 through 3. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and our mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I love Paul because Paul doesn't sugarcoat anything. Paul's the kind of guy who goes straight for the heart because he knows he needs to. And so he tells us something. He says, you were dead. You know, I've heard this illustration growing up about how, you know, our salvation experience is like a man drowning in the ocean and he's drowning in his sins. And the God of the universe throws you a life raft and you hang on to that life raft. And that's what saves you. I have a little bit of a problem with that illustration because I don't think it testifies to our deadness. See, I don't think we're drowning. I think we're dead. I think we're floating in an ocean of sin and I think there's no hope for life. See, if I need a God to toss out a life raft, I don't need a savior, I need a lifeguard. If I'm merely sick, I need a doctor. I don't need the God who conquered death and rose from the dead. But if I'm dead, there is no hope. There's nothing I can lean on. There's nothing I can turn to except for the God who rose from the dead. Because that's where I am spiritually. I'm just this dead being. But you know, human beings aren't just dead spiritually. We're alive physically. And Paul addresses that too. He says, you are living in the desires of your flesh. You are children of wrath. You are enemies of God. See, just like I can't do anything spiritually to make myself alive, I'm also, every step that I take, every breath that I take is in opposition to the cross because I'm trying to do life my own way. And some people do it in different ways. 
Some people seek pleasure. Some people seek works. They think if they do enough, they can get to heaven. But Paul says, no, 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 you're dead. And every step you take is towards death. You know, I, I grew up in a kind of strict home, a strict church. And I would hear people talk about verses one through three. And the way they talked about it was this overwhelming sense of guilt. That you need to go out here and you need to feel so bad for your sin and so bad for your deadness that you need to repent. And you need to, you need to do more because God's done so much for you. But I don't think that's what Paul's doing. And the reason I don't think that's what Paul's, Paul's doing is in the next verse. See, God is reminding us to remember who God is. Not just who we are, but remember who God is. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. I think it's important that Paul puts this here. He doesn't say we're dead and then we make a choice and God loves us. No, no, no. He says, before we ever had an opportunity, before we got the chance to speak, while we were still dead in our sins, the God of the universe loved us. When I was so undeserving, when I spit on the cross as I walked away from it, he said, I still love you and I want you to be mine. You know, about uh, three years ago, my wife and I made this great decision. See, we'd been married a few years and things had started to settle down. I had a good job before I quit it. Um, she had a job. We had a house. It was a big house. We were going to try to plan to fill it with kids. So three years ago, we made the decision, okay, now is the time. So we started trying to have kids. And after a few months, something came up and we realized something's not right. Something's broken. So we go to the doctor and I'm a very analytical guy. And so I'm just, okay, tell me what's broken. Tell me how we fix it. Doctor said, Darren, that's not how it works. You see, there are so many different variables. There's so many different things that come into play that I, I can't tell you exactly what's wrong. What I can tell you is statistically speaking, if we put you guys on this medication and you do this, there's a high probability that it'll work itself out and you guys will get pregnant. So we left that office a little discouraged, but with a little bit of hope. And so... We tried, and we tried, and we tried. And month after month after month, I'm reminded that I can't bring life into this world. There's nothing but death. And so I watch as my wife's heart's broken. Because I'm watching this woman who God built to be a mom. She loves kids. And she can't have her heart's desire, and there's nothing I can do to provide it. And so finally, the doctor goes there and we, we tried everything we know to try. We need to send you to a specialist in Winston-Salem. So I go to a specialist thinking I'll get answers. And so we go to the specialist and I say, okay, tell me what's broken. And they go, Darren, we can't. It's not how this works. What we can tell you is there's a few stages of treatment we can do. So we went on the next stage and we tried and it failed. Finally, we go to the third stage and I'm just so exhausted. I'm tired of witnessing death in my home. I'm tired of not seeing life where there should be life. And so we, we finally go to the third stage and we try and one morning my wife comes in and she's crying and I'm going, how do I comfort her? How do I love her? How do I be the man God wants me to be? And she says, 
Darren, I'm pregnant. That's not fair. You can't come in crying. <laughs> like, that's not how this works. You're supposed to be excited. You're supposed to be overjoyed. According to her, I jumped around like a chimpanzee. But I'm okay with that reaction because it's normal. But her heart overjoyed that life, the God of the universe said, I want to breathe life where there was death. You see, I thought the moment I heard that, that there's going to be a day where I get to sit my son down and I get to tell him how he was brought into the world. And like Ryan Murphy said, I can't run away from the fear or the doubt. I've got to share everything. That means I've got to talk to him about the cost. I've got to talk to him about the tears. I've got to talk to him about the pain. I've got to talk to him about all of that. Not because I want him to feel guilty, but because I want him to know he was loved before he ever existed. And that's what Paul's doing. He's telling us about our deadness. He's telling us about our brokenness, not because we need to feel guilt, but it's only in understanding our deadness. It's only in understanding all of that that we can start to understand the depths of hell that the God of the universe reached down to, to save us. That's the love of our father. That's the love of the God of the universe. He brought life where there was death. See, we can't just remember the nature of God and who God is. We have to remember what God did. We have to remember how far he went to bring us into his home. Paul continues, he says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So while we were dead, while we were dead, he brought us to life. But not only did he bring us to life, he said, all right, not only are you saved, I'm going to clean you and I'm going to bring you to heaven with my son. See, you're a co-heir with Jesus Christ. The fact that my name and the name of Jesus Christ, the fact that your name and the name of Jesus Christ, both are equated as sons and daughters of the Lord most high. When I was an enemy of God, he loved us. You know, I used to tell my testimony, and I, to be honest with you, I belittled my testimony. I used to tell people I was saved at the age of 10. I was raised in a very strictly religious home. We were at church every Sunday, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night visitation, Saturday men's breakfast. We were there. But at the age of 10, I still remember going to a camp. And when I went to this camp... They preached the gospel and I just felt the absolute calling of Jesus Christ on my life. And I surrendered. But you know, I'm, I'm 10. The only idol I have in my heart is Mario Kart. <laughs> Nothing really changed. At least that's what I thought. But then God made me go back and he made me remember my salvation. And I think my story goes a little bit differently. I think from the perspective of God, before the light was separated from the dark, there was a conversation in the triune God where the God of the universe looked out and he said, that 10-year-old boy who's broken and beaten and he's dead and he's rebellious, Jesus, I want you to go save him. Holy Spirit, I want you to go convict him because he's mine. Jesus looked out and he saw 
that broken 10-year-old boy. And he said, but God, he lives in rebellion to you. He's lied and he's stolen and he's, he's done so much against the cross. And Father, please remember, I don't just have to pay for that 10-year-old boy. I've got to pay for that 20-year-old man and that 30-year-old man and all the sins for the rest of eternity. And let me tell you what that's going to cost. See, I'm going to be nailed to a tree. And your wrath is going to be poured out onto me. And when your wrath is poured out on me, for the first time in all of eternity, there's disunity within the Trinity because you can't look at sin. And for the first time in all of eternity, I feel forsaken as your son so that we can save him. And he says, yes, God, I'll go do that because I love him too. I'll do that because I care for him. That is our salvation story. That is what God did for me. That is what God did for you. No matter what our story looks like, no matter what age we're saved at, no matter what addictions or afflictions, whatever we had to get over to get to the cross, the God of the universe reached out before he breathed life into man and breathed life into your soul and said, I want him. I want her because I want them to be a part of my family. And if we ended the story there, if we left here, it would be a good day because we should all be grateful for our salvation. But Paul doesn't end there. No, Paul continues. See, Paul goes on because he says, the reason I'm reminding you of your salvation, the reason I'm reminding you of how far the God of the universe had to reach down and grab you, the reason I'm doing all of that is because I want you to understand you were built with a purpose and that God's grace produces something in you and you're called to do something with it. See, we have to remember what God produces. Remember what God's grace produces. So in verse eight and nine, those are the most famous verses in Ephesians. Everybody kind of leaves verse 10 out because it's the redheaded stepchild. They don't want to talk about verse 10. And there's a lot of different reasons why, but today we're going to talk about all three of them because I think they go together. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. For by grace you have been saved through faith. See, grace leads to faith and it produces and leads to salvation. See, it's God's grace that allows us to lean on him. It's God's grace that calls us to him and our faith leads to salvation. And I think that's something all of us can grasp and all of us can understand because it's been preached since the reformation. We're not saved by works. We're saved by faith. But Paul continues, and he, he kind of inserts a little bit of an interesting statement. He says, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Like I said, I, I think as Christians get further away from their testimony, we start to depend on our works. Not for our salvation, but for our relationship. See, if I just do enough, see, I fall in that trap. If I just do the right things, I'll have a closer relationship with God. God says, no. No, 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 I want to produce a humility in you that changes your heart. 
I want to produce humility that changes something inside of you so that you understand where all of this comes from. You never forget the love and the mercy and the grace that I've poured out on you. But he doesn't leave it there. He continues in verse 10. He says, for we are his workmanship. You are crafted by the God of the universe before you were even a thought. The God of the universe started making you. He started giving you talents and abilities and he crafted you specifically for his purpose. He crafted you to do good work. See, it's when we understand who God is, when we lean so heavily on him, when we fall in love with him, that we realize that we were put on this earth to do works that give us, give my life purpose. See, there was this interesting thing. During the Reformation, you had the Catholic church that were talking about the way you earn your way to salvation and you pay penance and and, and you, you do all of these things. And if you do all the right things and if you say the right kind of prayers and you do the right kind of things, then you can enter into heaven. And so you had this massive split with people like John Calvin and Martin Luther and Zwingli. You had all these people leaving the church and going, no, it's faith alone by grace alone. But there's, a, there's something that gets missed in that sometimes. And I, I love the way John Calvin came back to it and he, he clarified. He said, it is faith alone that justifies. There's no argument with that statement, but faith that justifies is never alone. You see, if we remember our salvation, if we go back and we think about the depths of hell that God reached into to save us, then you can't help but do two things. And that's rejoice at the cross and say, what's next? What do you want from me, God? How do I serve you? How do I share my gospel story? Because just like that pastor, the answer is I may not be able to preach uh, the gospel better, but nobody can preach a better gospel. And for you, it may not be preaching the gospel on a stage. For you, it may be just preaching the gospel at the grocery store. It might be preaching the gospel at work, at, at work. But as you go throughout your day, having the opportunity to do the work of the ministry and to share your story, because it's a story that's worth telling. It's a story that's not simplistic, but a miracle. And I think it's worth telling the world about God's goodness and God's grace and God's love. And so as we leave today, my prayer for everyone in this room is just remember your salvation, not the way that we tell it, but the way that God of the universe talks about you. The way he says, I love you and I chose you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I come before you today and I thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, for your love. I thank you that you would let me come up here and just share my heart in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.